welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to Series 7 and Episode 11, which is called Jesus Sets Out for Jerusalem. We're going to be studying in Luke's Gospel, Chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. This is the last episode in Series 7, so it's a good moment to just look back over what's happened in this very dramatic series and this dramatic period in the life of Jesus. The earlier series from series three through to series six described for the most part the main part of Jesus' ministry which was in Galilee and many of you will have followed those series and followed the story. But just to quickly remind us that in those earlier series we see that Jesus travelled around Galilee for a long period of time, many months into years, and he took his disciples with him. He gathered his discipleship group. He formed it. He formed a group of 12, which he called his apostles. Then eventually he sent them out. And it appears that Jesus had three periods of time where he was touring around Galilee. We call them the three tours of Galilee in the earlier series. Many miracles, many remarkable things happened, huge crowds gathered, many healings, and it was a dramatic and wonderful time in Jesus' ministry. It was at that time, as we saw in series four, that he gave that magnificent teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, which provides the framework for Christian discipleship lifestyle, and which we studied very closely in series four. Now, series seven is a transition in the life of Jesus. Everything changes in series seven. This time of working in Galilee and traveling around is coming to an end and something very different is going to be happening as we have described as we've gone through series seven. But just to remind us of some of the important things that we discovered in series seven. First of all, At the beginning, we notice that Jesus takes his disciples away from the crowds, away from Galilee itself into another province and spends time there with them and has some remarkable experiences with them. He takes them to the town of Caesarea Philippi, as recorded in Matthew chapter 16 and parallel passages, and There he has a remarkable conversation with them concerning his identity. Who exactly is he? The Messiah, the son of the living God, is Peter's answer. He explains to them that he's going to form a church community and that it's going to be very powerful and to develop and to grow. Then he takes his inner circle, Peter, James and John, up the mountain near Caesarea Philippi and a very high mountain, and then he is transfigured before them. He suddenly has heavenly glory around him and within him. He's transformed into his heavenly, glorious presence just temporarily, a very remarkable and overwhelming experience for Peter and John. And he meets the Old Testament figures returning at that moment, Moses and Elijah, representing Old Testament history and prophecy and law and has a conversation with them. These are really remarkable events. And then following that, he begins the process of 
educating his disciples towards the right expectations of what's going to be happening at the end of his life. He tells them time and again that he's going to suffer, to die and be raised again from the dead. And we've seen some of those predictions in earlier episodes in series seven, where we've been able to study them more closely. Then we've just finished in the episodes before this one, a discussion of Jesus's teaching as represented and recorded in Matthew 18 about the community of the church. Jesus again talking to his disciples about the community that will exist after he has left them. The implication of that chapter is that everything that happens in this community, the church, will happen without him being personally present. So we can see he's training his disciples for the future. And Matthew 18 has some remarkable insights about our attitudes towards God, about the dangers of undermining the faith of believers and the danger of believers or disciples wandering away from the church community. We hear amazing teaching, challenging teaching about the essential role of forgiveness in relationship between believers particularly. And so that is the teaching that we have just concluded looking at in the last episode. So at this point, we're returning to Luke's narrative, and it's Luke who helps us more than any of the other gospel writers to understand Jesus's purpose and his actions at this point. It's Luke who defines the turning point most decisively, and that's really helpful for us in terms of understanding the rest of the gospel story. And so we're going to start by just looking back in Luke 9 at his account of the transfiguration, which comes from verse 28 onwards, just to quickly remind ourselves of the event that has triggered the change of direction. I'm just going to read a few verses from uh, Luke 9, verse 28 uh, through to verse 31. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour talking to Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Now it's the topic of their conversation that I want to concentrate on. Clearly there's a remarkable supernatural event uh, occurring here. Two of the great leaders of the Old Testament Jews uh, and the Old Testament period are peering and talking to Jesus. That in itself is a miracle, remarkable miracle. They come in a, a glorious heavenly light and it's a remarkable experience for Peter, James and John. But what they discussed is the key. They discussed Jesus's departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. That means his departure from this life which implies his death, 
It implies his resurrection and it implies his return to heavenly glory, the glory which they're just seeing a little bit of here in the moment of transfiguration. And also this statement says that he was going to bring it to fulfillment. In other words, he was going to orchestrate events. He was going to be in the initiative to make things happen according to the pattern of events that was the will of his father and the plan of salvation. Now, Jerusalem is not in Galilee. Jerusalem is in the south of the country, as we've stated many times. It's the capital city, the city of the temple, the city where the religious establishment is based, the city which the Roman governor watches over when he visits at least three times a year. And it's the place that everyone sees as the heart of the nation. It's a long way south of Galilee. So if Jesus is going to bring about some dramatic events in Jerusalem, then the obvious implication is he needs to move his location to Jerusalem. And that's significant given that his base has been right there in the middle of Galilee, his hometown from which he's operated for his ministry in Galilee is Capernaum, right there on the Sea of Galilee, the home of some of his disciples. And he's now going to leave all that behind and he's going to head to Jerusalem with the intention that he will bring about these events while he's at Jerusalem. And so he's not coming back to continue his ministry in Galilee. Let's take up the story in our passage for today. Luke 9 verses 51 to 55, which is the first half of the passage that we're going to study today. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Well, the beginning of this passage tells us very clearly about Jesus intentions. He resolutely set out. More literally, he set his face for Jerusalem. He was determined now to move his location as he was preparing for the time where, as Luke describes it here, he was going to be taken up into heaven. That's describing the same thing as we saw in Luke 9, 30 and 31, which described his departure, leaving this life and returning back to heavenly glory. So the rest of the narrative, up until he arrives in Jerusalem, which will cover many, many different events and a lot of material in the Gospels, the rest of that narrative is related to this long journey south. Now, it's clear that Jesus took many weeks, if not months, to get to Jerusalem because he stopped in a number of different places and he moved backwards and forwards around the area between Galilee and Jerusalem. 
So this isn't a quick journey, but it's a definite journey. It's a purposeful journey, and he will end up in Jerusalem, where there will be a confrontation. He's already warned about that confrontation. We mentioned those predictions of his suffering, death and resurrection that he's just been giving to his disciples. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 16 that he many times warned them that this was going to happen when he arrived in Jerusalem. But in order to go to Jerusalem, as this account indicates, the quickest way is to go through the territory between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south in which Jerusalem is situated and in between them is a central territory. There are essentially three major territories in the main heartland of the country of Israel on the west of the River Jordan. There's some other territories on the eastern side which we've mentioned but for our purposes we just at this moment need to focus on the fact we've got Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle and Judea in the south. Jesus is heading to Judea. The quickest way is to go through Samaria. Now, there's a complexity attached to that, and we've already seen this complexity when we discuss the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman as described in John chapter 4. So if you're familiar with that story or you've heard that episode, you'll understand what I'm referring to. You see, the Samaritans were not Jews. Their historical origin was that although this territory was originally Jewish, when part of the country was sent into exile, the northern part of the country, including Galilee, under the power of the Assyrian Empire, 700 years before Christ, roughly, at that time, the Assyrians exiled many Jews and they also imported other nationalities and ethnic groups into the land to create a racial mix and to create a a sort of ethnic cleansing around their large empire. So the ethnic groups who came into the country, when they intermarried with remaining Jews, developed a separate identity which became known as the Samaritans, one of their main cities is Samaria, hence the name. Now, the Samaritan people lived uncomfortably alongside the Jews. There was a mutual dislike. The Samaritans claimed that they worshipped the same God, the Jewish God Yahweh. They honoured the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. They had their own temple, which they set up, in a large hill called Mount Gerizim in their territory. And they worshipped in parallel to the Jews, but they didn't accept all the later Jewish writings and teachings and the prophets. And they believed that they were the true people of God rather than the Jews. So there was a mutual antipathy and tension between these ethnic groups. Now this outworked in a particular way concerning the geography of the country because Jews from the north, Galilee, travelling to Jerusalem, would often consider going through Samaria. It was the quickest route. But they usually received a fairly negative or hostile reception and sometimes they weren't even allowed hospitality in Samaritan homes. 
And so on many occasions, they took a longer route. They went down the Jordan Valley near the River Jordan and then up again to Jerusalem. And we find Jesus follows that route on occasion in his life. But on this occasion, like in John chapter four, he travels straight through Samaria. And you can immediately see what happens. He receives a hostile welcome from a particular village. And the reason was he was heading for Jerusalem. In other words, he was going on a Jewish religious pilgrimage. They didn't like that. They didn't like these Jewish tourists traveling through. And this provokes James and John to get really angry and to say something really foolish. They had seen the power of God on the Mount of Transfiguration very recently. They'd even seen Elijah come back, the one who could call down fire from heaven as he did on Mount Carmel in the Old Testament. Maybe these experiences were vividly in their minds, but they really were angry with the Samaritans for being so hostile to Jesus. They wanted a divine judgment on that village, but Jesus rebuked them and they went to another village. So here is the scene. They're traveling along the road. They're heading slowly but surely south to Jerusalem for reasons that we've explained. And as they're walking along, three conversations about discipleship take place in this context. Verses 57 to 62 of Luke 9. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. These are three fascinating, brief and challenging conversations. The three people concerned appear to be general followers of Jesus. They're in the group of people that's traveling with him. And we can imagine quite a number of people traveling with Jesus on his journey. But these three conversations are very significant but require careful interpretation. What does the first one mean when he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied that foxes and birds have their places to rest, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Well, of course, he's referring to the immediate context. What have we just seen in the previous passage? He went into one Samaritan village to try and receive hospitality and he was denied it. Jesus now traveling through Samaria is in a position where he doesn't know where he's going to sleep the next night and he doesn't know if he's going to have a bed to sleep on. He's in hostile territory, he's in uncertain situation. This is in 
stark contrast to the time when Jesus was in Galilee, where for the most part, when Jesus was traveling around, people would fall over themselves to give him hospitality, to give him a meal, to entertain his disciples and to give them a bed for a night if they needed it. So Jesus is essentially saying to this first man, if you want to follow me, you will also have to accept a degree of uncertainty about your material provision and the practicalities of life as you are serving me. Just as I can't be certain where I'm going to sleep and I can't be certain of the reception I'm going to get from people. So this will apply to you. This is something of the cost of Christian discipleship. It's not an easy ride. Verse 59, to another man he said, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me, let me go and bury my father. Now, if the father had already died, he wouldn't be at the side of the road with Jesus because the custom of the Jews was to bury very, very quickly after death. He wouldn't be traveling along if his father had died already. Essentially, what he means is that he's anticipating the death of his father. Perhaps his father is aging. His father might be seriously ill. And so he's saying to Jesus, I need to attend to the situation with my father, which will involve ultimately burying my father. I need to be with him in the last period of his life rather than coming straight to follow you. But Jesus speaks to this man with a sense of urgency. You see, Jesus is just about to launch a major campaign in Samaria and in Judea of preaching. He's going to send out 72 people. A large group of people are going to be sent out. And there's an urgency to proclaim the kingdom at this time. So it's not possible for the preaching of the gospel to wait for a convenient time. And so sometimes kingdom demands supersede family commitments. Sometimes kingdom priorities override the needs of our wider family. And we have to sometimes make difficult choices in terms of our priority. And Jesus prophetically spoke to this man when he said to him, follow me. He was essentially putting his finger on the issue that the man had to make a decision whether he was going to spend some weeks or months with Jesus traveling around, then go back to his family, or whether he was going to stay with his family till a convenient time. There isn't a convenient time to become a Christian disciple. The time is always now. And the now call of God is sometimes inconvenient and difficult in terms of our other responsibilities. And we have to decide what God is calling us to prioritize. This is, in fact, the experience of Jesus in his own life, as we will uh, remind ourselves in just a moment. Now, the final conversation is between a man who's keen to follow Jesus, but he wants to say, Goodbye to his family. He'd been away from home for some time, perhaps, and he wanted just to spend a little bit of time with them before traveling with Jesus. But Jesus 
uses a very vivid metaphor here. No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. He's basically saying we can't look over our shoulders when we're committed to a kingdom priority that demands that we move forward and do something specific at that time. We can't look to our previous lives of comfort and security. There can't be any double-mindedness. And this conversation, and in fact all these three conversations, are set at a moment of critical activity for Jesus and his disciples. They were on the move and Jesus was about to launch a big campaign of preaching in Samaria and Judea as described in Luke chapter 10. And he was looking for recruits for that campaign who would be dedicated and wholehearted for the weeks or months that that particular campaign took place. So that's the context. Very important to see the context of these sayings, which have confused and troubled a lot of readers of the Gospels. And although they might appear to be harsh and difficult, they are expressing underlying principles about the kingdom of God, which apply to all of us. And they are set in the context of Jesus's very clear teaching about the nature of Christian discipleship. Let's just turn back in Luke chapter 9 briefly to verse 23 and verse 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And then he goes on, verse 25 and 26. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We're called to take up our cross daily. So as I bring some reflections, as we just draw together the threads of this very interesting passage, very challenging passage, I'd make these comments to help us think about what applications we could make to our own lives. Discipleship means embracing the possibility of material hardship, uncertainty and poverty. This is what Jesus actually did as he travelled along the road. These are only possibilities. They may not happen at any point in our lives. But the decisions we make, putting Christ first, are not based on any desire for our own comfort. Also, discipleship means prioritising kingdom calling over some social, family and cultural obligations and expectations. Now Jesus honoured his family very much. In fact he served his family faithfully for the majority of his adult life in Nazareth working in the family business with carpentry, woodworking, building and he honoured his mother, he honoured his brothers and sisters. 
But when he was called to a life that involved leaving home and prioritizing God's purposes for his life, he didn't hesitate to say goodbye to that family life and to move on and do the things that God called him to. Interestingly enough, he maintained a very real connection with his mother all the way through his life. She was there at the foot of the cross. She believed in his mission. And at least some, if not all, of his brothers are recorded as following him and believing in him over a period of time, but not initially. So the creative tension between family and kingdom calling is there even in Jesus' life. And it's a very real creative tension in the lives of Christians. And if we follow the other teachings of the New Testament, particularly the Apostle Paul and Peter in their writings, we notice that family is very important. Marriage is very important. Loving children and caring for them is very important. Consideration for our wider family is a Christian priority. All these things should be remembered. But the most important thing is what is Jesus calling us to do as disciples? And our family life needs to fit in to that wider calling rather than the other way around. Discipleship means not being double-minded, not looking for a comfortable alternative to living a active Christian life and sharing our faith with others. Now, we are not all called to make such instantaneous and radical decisions as are implied in the text here. The situation is very specific. It demanded that people either travelled with Jesus or went back home to their villages and to their families. And that's the context in which Jesus makes these very dramatic statements. We're not all called to make such sudden and difficult decisions, but we are all called to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And that's the key thing that we can learn from this. So I want you to find this episode helpful in reconsidering your own Christian discipleship and asking God through the power of the Holy Spirit to make clear to you what the priorities he has for you in your life and to then to ask him to give you the courage to follow those through. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.